Hello and welcome to another episode of Mostly Weather. We're here this week to talk a bit about uh, lightning. So I'll introduce who we've got this week. So we've got Doug McNeil. Hi there. Claire Whittam. Hello. I'm Neil Robinson. And our special guest this week is Jonathan Wilkinson. Say hello, Jonathan. Hello. So, Jonathan, can you just tell us a bit about what you do to do with lightning at the Met Office then? Yeah, of course I can. I'm a bit of an all-round kind of an expert, but um, what I tend to do is look at forecasting where lightning will occur, trying to use our models, trying to develop the next techniques to forecast where lightning will occur. I've also done quite a bit of work for the aviation industry based on lightning strikes, either helicopters or to kind of like other airborne lightning vehicles, small planes, that sort of thing as well. All right, nice. So I thought we'd kick off, guys, as we normally do, with talking about recipes. You know, I'm like my weather recipes, right? So what's the kind of recipe that we need for lightning? What conditions do we need for lightning strikes? Well, we need big thunderclouds to start yeah. with. I've used the word thunder already, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get myself into a hole here, thunder and lightning. Um, so we need these big convective clouds that we talked about in one of the previous yeah. podcasts, where we've got lots of upwards motion and cold temperatures uh, forming ice and hail within those clouds. I'm looking at Jonathan here. He's nodding. This is good. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the key thing we need is a voltage. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, yeah. So does anybody want to have a run very briefly what a voltage is? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so like molecules are made up of charged particles. And if we separate these positive and negative charges into sort of unbalanced regions, then a voltage is the word that we use to describe the difference between these charged regions, okay? So we've got an equal number of positive and negative things in the same place then we've got no voltage. And if we separate them out, then we've got a voltage. And these things want to be in the same place. They want to kind of attract to each other and, and neutralize each other, right? So this is the kind of voltage that we need to create in the atmosphere in order for a lightning strike. And a lightning strike is just when we're equilibrating these voltages, right? Does that sound fair enough? That sounds, sounds reasonable enough, yeah. Cool. Terms, yeah. All right, so what is it about these convective things that give us voltages? So what we've got happening in those clouds is we've got ice particles which are forming because the clouds are cool, reasonably high up, and we've got material rising. But as it rises, we're getting ice particles growing larger, and then some of them start to kind of form what we might think of as hail particles, right. and they start to fall. And then what happens is we've got some material going up, some material coming down, and they start to bash into each other. Yeah. And as they bash into each other, we get the transfer of electrons between the stuff going up and the stuff coming down, which means we get, on balance, the particles and the, the ice that's reaching near the top of the cloud is positively charged, and the material that's kind of coming down that's falling is negatively charged, and that's where we're getting this imbalance within our convective, our large convective cloud over vertical distances of, you know, many hundreds and hundreds of metres, uh, which means we then get this charge difference within our cool. cloud. So that's like the model explanation, right? How close is it to what we see in reality, Jonathan? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, there's a guy I, work, I knew from the States who was literally been out and been through all these clouds and literally done some almost like daredevil stuff because they could do stuff back in the 1960s when he was working <laughs> that we can't do now for health, health and safety. safety yeah, health and safety legislation. And he used to just fly through, you know, weird thunderstorms. The one thing that he said is that no two thunderstorms are alike. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, the no two snowflakes are... So, so sometimes, so Claire was talking about the negative charge at the bottom and positive charge at the top. Am I right in thinking that it can be the other way around? And sometimes you can get multiple charges, can't you? Multiple, we call these dipoles a positive and a negative charge. Sometimes you can have two dipoles in one cloud. And it's, so nature's a lot more messy. It's a lot more messy. Yeah. It's, it's, it just really just depends quite a lot on the cloud structure, the dynamics, mm. where the, you know, particles end up 
where the updraft that's the air that's being carried up the cloud and where the downdraft is and how much shear that's had that's a change of wind speed or direction with height so there's all sorts of number of different factors that really so come into play this would make sense in that looking at this briefly i saw that a lot of lightning isn't just between the cloud and the ground like the lightning that we might think of just if you mention lightning, people think ground strikes, but a lot of it's actually within the clouds or between clouds so themselves. From, from right? what I read, the majority of it doesn't touch the ground. So it's just inside a cloud or between two clouds, like you say. Yeah, yeah certainly in this country, I think there's quite a lot. I mean, you know, obviously I do a bit of watching when I'm yeah. there's a lightning storm about, and I see there's an awful lot seems to be within the cloud and only a few strikes coming down to the ground. So I've got a question, which might be an awkward one. We'll find out in a second. But we were talking about these things moving past each other and exchanging charges. So why does that happen? Why do these charges get stripped off? Why do we get this imbalance? If positive and negative like to be attracted to each other, why does rubbing them against each other tear them apart? You're effectively exchanging electrons within the particles themselves, but I don't know why these would sort themselves out into different regions. It I seems like there's quite a lot of uncertainty in this. The wind in the cloud, I presume it's just so strong. Updrafts, what, 25 metres a second or so? Really quite high winds in some of these storms. So I've got a feeling I used to know this when I was a physics undergraduate student. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's presumably quite similar to rubbing a balloon on your jumper, right, and building oh, up it's static the same electricity. Process. Yeah, I mean, looking at some of the early science done on this, people were rubbing amber with wool and this sort of thing yeah. and generating electricity. It goes back to there. So, so of what we would think of, of as static electricity. It is static right? electricity, yeah. yeah. So um, I've got a fascinating fact about how much energy there is in a lightning bolt. Oh, yes. So I read a paper by Brown and McFly, 1985, called On Charging Flux Capacity. Hang on, hang on. 1.21 gigawatts. 1.21 gigawatts, so that's not right, is it? Hang on, back up. No, back sorry, up. no, hold on. Maybe that's not a reputable <laughs> source. Slightly more scientifically. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe about a billion volts. So, uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, I've, yeah, I've come across that one. I've not got it in volts. I've got <laughs> 50,000 Kelvin, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty damn hot, isn't it? 50,000 um, Kelvin? Mm. Okay, yeah, that's considerably higher than the numbers I was seeing as well. So, actually, this is probably a good time to talk about what lightning bolts are actually made of. Mm. Given the temperature, why do we get these big, shiny blue things moving through the sky? What is that? What's going on there? They're plasma, right? Yeah. So they're ionised gas. Yeah, so what does that mean? What's a plasma? What's an ionised gas? This is one of the four states of matter, isn't it? It's a you know, liquid, uh, solid, uh, gas, and, and ionised gas. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gas where a lot of the atoms and molecules have, have had their electrons stripped off or, or exchanged. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and this is presumably because it's 50,000 Kelvin hot. It's right? a lot so of energy in there. There's an yeah. awful lot of energy in these molecules, and they just get completely torn apart. And, and this is what we're seeing. This is what the blue stuff is. And so that's the lightning component. What's the deal with thunder then? Thunder is caused by what's almost left behind. So you get all this charge uh, occurring in the atmosphere. You're then superheating the air around it. And then as the charge is leaving, the air's pressure is changing and it's coming back and you're getting fluctuations then in the air that's left behind, which is a bit like banging a drum. Basically, you get those vibrations. And I think you get a big kind of crack as the, the charge goes through initially and you get the initial plasma forming and then as the atmosphere settles back, you get this resonating and that's the rumbling noise that we ah, then hear afterwards is to do with the, the, yeah, the air sort of going backwards and so forwards. The, yeah, the initial crack, I can see if you're going to heat some air up to 50,000 Kelvin, it's going to expand a bit, right? <laughs> and, and basically expanding air is just, this is a pressure wave, so it's like clapping your hands, right? Okay, this is a pressure wave that moves through the atmosphere. That's it, and I think maybe you're almost creating a vacuum, so it's as that air yeah. goes back in and then you get that That's interesting, crack. I never thought about the rumbling before. And because of the speed of sound and the speed of light, you can tell 
or people can tell yeah. work out where the thunderstorm actually is, you know, relative to each other. You know, yeah, how far away it is. How right? far away it because is. Because lightning travels effectively instantaneously and yeah. sound travels much more slowly. So you hear them both together, this storm is supposedly right above you. Yeah. So I, I got asked an interesting question by somebody when I was talking in preparation for the episode, which is, has anybody ever thought about harvesting lightning as a form of alternative energy source? I haven't personally, but have you... Uh, I, I thought it was quite a good idea, so I, I did some reading on it. Can anybody think of a famous historical episode to do with harvesting energy from lightning? Anybody? Um, apart from Back to the Future. Apart, well, <laughs> apart from the, ob- the obvious canonical sources like Back to the Future. Are we going to call that historical? I like it. So yeah, anybody, why not? Anybody heard of the Franklin Key experiment? Oh, the flying, the, the kite and the thunderstorm. Yeah. So go I, on. I didn't know he was yeah. trying to harvest energy. That sounds... So, so go on, what do you think? I don't know. It I'm seems, right. unfortunately, from further reading up on this. So for people who I don't know, the, the Benjamin Franklin Key experiment was where Franklin suspended a key in a jar from a kite and flew the kite into the thunderstorm. Sounds dangerous. Well, it's funny you should say that. We'll come back to that in a second. So the idea is this key in a jar is a kind of old-fashioned capacitor. So it's something that can store some of this charge. Unfortunately, on further reading, it turns out it looks like this is apocryphal. This story probably isn't true. Partly because if the lightning strike had hit the kite, Franklin would have been zapped. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it, it seems that... Is this uh, a bit like Newton's apple, you know, this kind of thing that is an apocryphal story that yeah. actually explains yeah. something useful? Exactly. So, I mean, so certainly I think Franklin was certainly involved in theorizing that you could do this kind of thing. Um, so there is a company called Alternative Energy Holdings who in 2007 managed to power a 60-watt light bulb for 20 minutes from artificial lightning. Okay, so they seem to be the people that have got closest. But then I was thinking about this, and if you look at sort of conservation of, of energy, this is like this fundamental physical principle. Where does the lightning get its energy from? Well, essentially, it's getting it from the sun, right? So you're getting the sun's heating up the ground, you're getting unstable air and that's moving and then you're creating these thunderclouds and then you're creating electrostatic charge and then you're yeah. releasing that charge. So, so I guess what I'm saying is instead of trying to harvest this extremely awkward instantaneous <laughs> burst of energy, why don't we just get it from the source and use solar panels? Presumably that's why this hasn't been, this hasn't been pursued <laughs> much. It doesn't sound a much like more a, efficient a terribly way. efficient and perhaps dangerous as well, I yeah. would imagine. It's interesting, though, because there are places in the world where lightning strikes much more frequently than it does in other areas. You could envisage going to some of these places and trying to set up some sort of array. Don't ask me about the technology behind it. But, you know, in those areas, maybe that would be a good source to try some of these experiments. So where do we get? That's a good point. Where do we get more lightning then? Which parts of the world? Florida is a good place. Yeah. So if you think about going to Disney or other theme parks or nice sunshine beaches, now you often get quite a lot of lightning in Florida, and that's mostly because it's a peninsula and you can get like a sea breeze effect from both sides. So that's right. It's got sea breeze convergence, doesn't it? So you, sea breeze is where the land and the water are different temperatures, and that gives you a breeze going from the area of sort of high pressure to the area of low pressure. Because Florida is a peninsula, it's a double whammy, right? You get this from both sides. It meets in the middle, and that gives you these enormous thunderstorms. So a similar thing happens on lots of islands, like there's some islands north of Australia, I think they're called the Tawau Islands, are they? And they've got this very famous storm called Hector, and I think part of the reason that Hector happens regularly is for these sea breeze convergence effects. Um, Interesting. There's a place, so northwest Venezuela apparently has the record for the most number of lightning strikes. 300 plus nights of the year, they get a massive electrical storm. And again, that's because of where it is and the confluence of different air masses. So they've got warm trade winds coming from the Caribbean, 
which I guess might be similar to parts of Florida. Mm. But then they also have the cool air descending from the Andes. So it's where those two air masses are so turning over. And we've uh, talked a bit about this before, right? This is about instability in the atmosphere. Mm. So you've got this sort of warm, wet air and cold, dry air. And that's sort of upside down from how the atmosphere would like to be. So you get this sudden writing and this convection kicks off, which is what we need for our storms. So I've got, I've got a nice link here. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking you guys have mentioned Florida as a really good place to generate these thunderstorms and lightning. So this must be a real problem for NASA, who are launching rockets. Yeah, and I understand that you don't want to fly rockets through these thunderstorms, right? So I wonder if there's a timing issue. And then hopefully that's going to link into some of Jonathan's work, because it sounds like you probably don't want lightning strikes on uh, helicopters and rockets yeah, the same. Yeah. That. You were saying you do a lot of stuff about what effect lightning has on aircraft. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of that. We'll we'll cover some of the thunderstorms over Florida and kind of Cape Canaveral and other places first. I mean, they basically, yes, they won't launch as far as I'm aware if there's a thunderstorm around. So they do rely on really quite accurate forecasts and keep eye on the kind of weather radar and that, that sort of thing. Because, you know, obviously a huge amount of fuel, particularly you've got a huge amount of fuel out there and likelihood of, you know, that being ignited by lightning is not a good thing. Definitely um, not. Hmm. <laughs> But yes, so coming back to the kind of like the lightning strikes, kind of like helicopters, airborne, kind of other sort of vehicles, there's a big tendency really for lightning strikes to be triggered by kind of like aircraft. You know, particularly when they're kind of like, you know, descending from airports or descending to airports is normally quite a common time. And this is big jet aircraft or just any kind of aircraft? Anything really, it seems to be. I mean, there seems to be quite a lot of instances around kind of like um, busy airports. Um, Sheephole in Amsterdam has a huge amount of lightning activity. Apparently there's a lot of issues with this. And some of the Norwegians and Swedish have also had issues kind of particularly in the winter months. So why do aircraft trigger lightning strikes? We tend to think of lightning discharging to the ground where it's effectively earthed, isn't it? So it can dissipate all this charge. But aircraft aren't earthed. Well, they're literally not Earth, right? They're in the atmosphere. <laughs> so what is it that causes the aircraft to get hit? Does it hit the aircraft and then go to Earth? Or does it hit the aircraft and go back to another cloud? Or does it just hit the aircraft? We don't know for definite for a lot of things unless we've got photography. I mean, sometimes it comes through the aircraft to the ground mm. and sometimes it kind of like, you know, go back to the cloud. So what's the choice. effect on the aircraft then? Uh, it depends what sort of aircraft. Most aircraft, uh, you know... We should say anybody who's about to fly, including me, I'm off flying tomorrow. Um, <laughs> anybody who's about to fly, you know, it is perfectly safe. Most aircraft are capable of surviving the impact. So, so. so who knows why you don't get fried then? Ah, is it a Faraday cage? It is a Faraday ah, cage. That's, that's what okay. I was thinking. So yeah. I was on a boat in the Mediterranean years and years ago, and our skipper, in the middle of a terrifying lightning storm, wrapped a metal chain around the mast and dunked it over the side in order to provide a good, you know. But he said, go inside and you'll be protected because essentially the boat is a big Faraday cage. So it's going to dissipate any charge which comes through in the lightning and you'll be safe inside. I'd love to know whether putting the chain around the, the mast I think it might have been a placebo, but I think it was a fiberglass boat. So um, yeah. probably it's not going to work very well as a Faraday cage apart from if it's got electronic mm. wiring within mm. it. But we're trying to provide an easy path for the electrical charge to dissipate through into the water. Yeah, who, who wants to take a run at Faraday cages in general? then oh no i'm gonna so, leave that to you now so if i remember correctly the way the fire as we said earlier similar charges repel each other so opposites yeah. attract okay it's like love so right <laughs> if you've got a similar charge of it's the getting light, more and more tenuous <laughs> if you've got the similar charge trying to flow through your metal cage you know it's the thought experiment is with a cage and then go to ground all these similar charges from the lightning repel each other so they go across a kind of skin on the outside of this metal thing so if you're on the inside of the metal thing, 
you're okay because the charge is traveling as much as it can over the outside of the surface. So this Faraday cage could be your jet plane or slightly more confusingly could be some kind of path through a mast and through a chain into the sea <laughs> in a boat. So, so what are the, um, the aircraft and the helicopters that you're working on? What are they made of? Is it aluminium? Is it carbon fiber? Is it, what is it? Good question. I don't actually know the answer to that. Uh, I do know that um, the main problem that we have with the helicopters particularly is that because they've got rotor blades, you talk about lighting, that heat that's coming out of that lightning charge, that is almost concentrated through the rotor blades at the top when it comes through. Either it comes through usually the tail rotor or it comes through the main rotor blade. And that's where just below that rotor blade is where you've got the main gearbox or the main mechanism. I mean, I'm no expert on helicopter mechanics, but that important stuff is there. So you imagine the heat that's going through that, heating up that gearboxes and things. So I would quite like to talk about some of the more exotic forms of lightning. Talking of sailing, has anybody heard about St Elmo's fire? Oh, yes. Well, yeah. this links back to aircraft as well. I... The reason it gets its name, St Elmo's fire, is because St Elmo is the patron saint of sailors. This used to be an effect that you would see on ships at sea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, go on, Claire, tell, tell us about St Elmo's fire then. Well, I, I kind of know it from a, a volcanic plume situation where you also have a lot of charge, so very similar to a big thunderstorm, because I, I guess most aircraft try to fly around big areas of thunderstorm yeah, and not convection, don't they? So it's sort of unusual that they'd be in that situation, but the charge on them causes this glow, really, on, on the wingtips and potentially on the cockpit windows and things, and what you'd envisage in a movie would look like a charged <laughs> plane. It starts to appear on, on the external frame of the aircraft. Well, I think I'm right in saying this This doesn't have to happen at hot temperatures. It's not like the, the light that you get from a lightning strike. It's sort of um, akin to what happens in a fluorescent lamp or something like that. So to do with the chemical composition of the air, it governs the colour of the St Elmo's fire, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know my understanding is mainly to do with the charge in there rather than... So you need the voltage in the air in order to create it, right? So so if you've generally got voltages building up, not enough for a lightning strike, but in the right conditions, you can create these glows. And one of the reasons that happens on ships is because when you've got a metal point of something, that reduces the amount of voltage that you need in order for this to happen. So I guess you can imagine there's a lot of pointy metal things on ships. So you would tend to get this charge. And this was considered good luck by sailors, you know, because it's a sort of sign of their patron saint uh, looking down on them. So I've got a... <laughs> really? There's something slightly ironic about that, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so it's like the whole, you know, being pooed on by a seagull. Is that really good luck? <laughs> or, you know, are you just making me feel better? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just uh, putting a positive spin on a negative situation. So I've got an account here from 1817 of a guy called uh, Lord Hopetown in Lanarkshire, who was saying, uh, this is while he's riding on horseback, I could observe an immense number of minute sparks darting towards the horse's ears and the margin of my hat which produced a very beautiful appearance, and I was so sorry to be soon deprived of it. Which sounds rather rather lovely, really. Not dangerous at all. Is this is this still St Elmo's fire? Is yeah, this yeah, St Elmo's okay, fire. Okay. That's incredible because I think if you were actually struck by lightning, which happens more than you might imagine, it's yes. I mean, it can be fatal. So it sounds yeah, like no he was probably quite lucky. Mm. St Elmo's fire has actually been created in the lab as well. So very famously, it was created by Nikolai Tesla. This incredibly famous and eccentric scientist in 1899 using a Tesla coil. And apparently there's stories of butterflies flying past while he's doing the experiment and glowing blue as they go past the Tesla coil. And of course, this has got a link to current affairs. Do you know who played Nikolai Tesla in a film called The Prestige? The late, great David Bowie, of course. Dearly departed. Very good, very topical. Yeah, thanks very much. I was quite pleased when (laughs) I remember that. That's impressive. (laughs) How long were you up last night trying to find that one? (laughs) (laughs) So what about about other forms of lightning-type stuff? 
I read a, an account of some ball lightning. I don't know if you came yeah. across this one in Widdicombe in the Moor, which is just really? up the road on Dartmoor. Yeah, so I think back in the 17th century, so Jonathan, and it's destroyed the, is, a church. As the resident lightning expert, where do we stand on ball lightning? So ball lightning is this sort of static lightning that comes in a ball and seems that there's lots of accounts of this lightning appearing and moving past people but I don't think it's ever been officially measured or anything has it? No I mean you think how infrequently it occurs you know it's not very often at all so there's a few accounts of it but it's very very rare however having said that there was a lightning strike to a plane that was coming off Shetland not the winter we're in now the winter has just gone and the aircraft the air crew reported actually seen ball lightning in the plane uh, a few moments before the um, bolt struck so that was quite interesting so it's so rare as to potentially not be real it's not been officially measured instrumentally it's it's challenging i mean if you go to the Met Office library which anybody can come and visit there's actually about three or four books on ball lightning which right? are a couple of inches thick each but very little information, really. What about sprites? Has anybody heard of sprites? Are these at the top of the atmosphere yeah. that you can see from space? These are these amazing phenomena. So they're um, flashes above thunderstorms in the mesosphere. And they're normally this sort of reddish color. And they're triggered by a positive discharge to the ground. And they were only first recorded in 1989. So it's only really since we've had people in space, you know, in the space station and satellites, that we're able to actually record these things. So it's a cold plasma as opposed to the hot plasma that we get from the lightning strike. Don't ask me how a cold plasma works. It's a bit like fluorescent tubes, okay? <laughs> and there's, there's all different kinds of sprites, and nobody's quite sure, I think, precisely how they work. We've got carrot sprites, jellyfish sprites, and the rather more sedately named column sprites. Carrot sprites? Yeah, I didn't hear that. Okay. Yeah, this the, is the, another the, argument for not letting physicists name oh, anything. You, you don't know the half of it, Doug. <laughs> only just getting started. What about emission of light and very low frequency perturbations due to electromagnetic pulse sources known as elves. Oh. Me. So this is another, that mean, then? <laughs> another similar phenomenon. So these are higher up. These are, again, above thunderstorms, but 100 kilometers up. This is up towards the ionosphere. And they can be 250 miles wide in diameter. And they think the electrons from the thunderstorms excite nitrogen in the, up in the ionosphere to make it glow. So now that we've done sprites and elves, what about trolls, gnomes, pixies? Is this I think physicists The scientists got a bit overexcited yeah. at this point, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, so these are all these different kind of upper atmosphere effects that you get above thunderstorms. One of the big advances that we've had recently is high-speed photography, because mm. obviously photography, you know, getting the frames, these things happen so quickly, you need to have a really fast shutter speed on your camera to go to capture that. So the whole group of guys basically in the US who will spend a lot of time looking at these storms point their shutter speed cameras at these storms and capture two or three or four frames really? of these events. Yeah. So does anybody know how long a, an individual strike lasts? I've got one to two microseconds per strike. Yeah, okay. So you're going to need a high-speed camera to, yeah, to are, see. Yeah, you So, Jonathan, could you explain, you said you were putting uh, lightning into the Met Office models. Could you explain what you're doing at that point, how that's working? The trouble is, is a lot of people care about lightning. I mean, you've got to think about this. People getting struck outside, obviously. There's other things like people working at power lines. You think if we're trying to issue a forecast for somebody, you know, trying to fix power lines when there's been a storm, they only want to go up and fix them. It's going to be safe for them to go up there, as well as, you know, wind turbines... They can track lightning, obviously, in the aviation industry. So there's quite a lot of people who are obviously really interested whether there's going to be lightning day around or not. And the traditional way that we would usually do that is by um, using weather balloons. We measure something that's basically called CAPE. 
And this is just a, a scientific acronym that stands for Convective Available Potential Energy. So it's, if you like, it's almost the energy that's available in the atmosphere to kind of drive a thunderstorm. It doesn't mean there's necessarily going to be a thunderstorm, but there's the energy so, available. So going back to, we've mentioned in the last few episodes, instability in the atmosphere. Is it fair to say that CAPE is just a way of quantifying how unstable the atmosphere it, is? It is, yeah, in, in a sense, yeah. And just to kind of put some figures in perspective, obviously the bigger the number, the more explosive like the storm is. Mm-hmm. And it also goes for kind of like the storms you get so in the US. Over here, you might get a Cape value of maybe 500, 1,000 over in the US. I was there just after a big Elvino storm near Oklahoma City in 2013. I was there the day after that happened. And the guys were talking about Cape of 6,000. So it's really explosive, really, really huge things. So... Anyway, that's that's the basis of kind of what you get for a storm. That's what meteorology has been using for ages. But the trouble with Cape is it doesn't vary a lot over a, a really big area. You know, I like take the area half the size of the UK and say, OK, there's going to be some thunderstorms that are trying to break out somewhere in that area, but we don't know exactly where. And so that's because the model or the observations are telling you that the Cape is about the, the It same. just tells you there's Cape there, but okay. it's so slowly varying over time. And there's, we actually need something to start triggering individual storms. It's yeah. a fairly probabilistic, a fairly stochastic process. You know, just these things just happen. So what we're trying to do with the Metaphys model is to try and get a better idea of where these storms are going to develop. And so what we do is we use the storms. The model's very advanced. It can show us roughly where it thinks there are going to be storms and where there's going to be areas of heavy rain already in model. And what we're trying to do is try and get some idea of that charging mechanism is that happening in the column in that storm and then kind of get the idea of will there be lightning and tie that region down from maybe half the size of the UK to something a lot smaller like a risk kind of round of individual airport or something like that and that supports our forecasters. I think you guys have put this to quite good use in the last few years. Am I right in thinking that you had stuff to do with the 2012 Olympics? Yeah, that, that was a long day. Was it? <laughs> yeah, so the, tell the, us what the, happened or what you were asked to do. Know, we were developing this just as the 2012 Olympics uh, came along. Obviously, the opening ceremony night, they really did care about whether there was going to be lightning because the queen was jumping out the helicopter. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's that other sort of thing. But obviously, anything that's outdoor, you, you want, and throughout the Olympics as well, they really cared about whether there's going to be lightning strikes. What happened on that day of the Olympics, as this was being, you know, in development, still more like a prototype, I got a call, and I don't know where the call came from, but it was passed on to me. Someone said, can you run this lightning forecast? We could really do with it for the chief forecasters to look at for tonight, you know, to see what's actually going to be happening down over London. Because they thought, it, you know, there's been storms in the channel that morning. There'd been kind of like storms all over France most of the afternoon. Yeah, and there was Cape around. They're kind of like, you know, can we tie this down? What does the model say anymore? So we reran the model. It took us most of the day to do it. It was about... You know, by six o'clock, by the time I basically say, yeah, there's um, looking like there's no chance of there being lightning over the Olympic Stadium, and luckily there was no lightning. But when I went home and watched that opening ceremony, I was like, you know, <laughs> on the edge of my seat throughout. <laughs> Everyone else sat at home enjoying yeah. it, thinking they've yeah. got a spectacle, and you just got hoping that yeah, there the wasn't going to be lightning. Might think. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Shall we hand over to Catherine Ross from Met Office Archives and find out what she's been searching into this week? So this month I've been looking around the archive for something interesting about lightning and we have a lot of stuff in there but one particular item is a collection of papers and letters regarding research into the effects of lightning which was carried out in the late 1900s and the best ways to deflect it. Uh, These include papers submitted for what they call the Lightning Rod Conference held in 1881. That conference was all about trying to find the best method of avoiding contact with lightning. And some of the most interesting things from it are actually advertisements from companies who sent in pictures of the lightning rods that they produced. Many of them are incredibly ornamental and complicated, but I have to say very few would actually have worked. 
one result coming out of that conference was a, an increased awareness of the fact that they needed to understand a great deal more about lightning and its effects and dangers. And so consequently, a call went out from the Royal Meteorological Society to anybody who read it, asking for their experiences of lightning or lightning strikes. And we have a collection of letters in the archive which were sent in in response to that request. One of them describes uh, the effect on the shoes of members of the congregation at Atcham Church near Shrewsbury when it was struck by lightning. For the most part, they melted. Meanwhile, another one includes one of the most unusual items in the entire archive, which is a fragment of the dress worn by a lady when she was struck by lightning. Um, I have to say she did not survive the experience. When it was first sent in, apparently it still smells of sulphur, but it doesn't anymore. Thanks very much, Catherine. So I looked up lightning and climate and the effects of climate change on lightning. It turns out there's not a huge literature, but I'm mentioning we were mentioning CAPE earlier and the potential energy and how that's important for generating lightning. And it turns out that there was a paper in Science just in 2014, which is one of the only papers which really looks at how lightning might change in the future. And effectively, they've got a really simple relationship, and it would be interesting to hear your comments on this, Jonathan, basically saying that the flash rate of lightning is proportional to CAPE times the precipitation rate, so rainfall or precip rate. And that, obviously, you'd expect as temperatures go up, precipitation to increase in the atmosphere, the amount of water vapour held by the atmosphere to increase. And so they run this through uh, some climate models and they find that lightning strikes increase by about 12% per degree C. And if you look at um, various ways that greenhouse gases might increase the temperature in the atmosphere, you're looking at about a 50% increase over really large areas of the United States of lightning strikes by 2100. So, so they're saying, you know, where you might expect two lightning strikes, in 2100 it will be three. And that's important because, well, obviously there's the personal safety issue and planes and aircraft we talked about before, but also these are major uh, ignition points for wildfires, so you'd get more wildfires. So there's another thing, actually, that we haven't talked about with um, with lightning strikes, and that's to do with composition in the troposphere. So they actually produce some quite nasty chemicals, these lightning strikes. So, for instance, ozone. Ozone's quite damaging if you breathe it, and it's damaging to plants and things like this. And so lightning strikes is actually a big source of ozone at ground level. And then you're actually changing atmospheric composition, yeah. so you're changing the atmospheric chemistry, and that's having a climate impact mm, as absolutely. well. So I think this is pretty new science and yeah. it's, um, the full impacts of that kind of thing haven't been worked through yet, but it sounds like there could be some impacts in the future. Following on from that, I mean, you said the numbers are not very clear and I saw something, you know, talking about the risk of being struck by lightning and the numbers I've seen kind of range from about one in 3,000 per year, which seems not that high to like one in 700,000 per lifetime. But basically it was saying... Yeah as the chance of lightning increases under climate change, then your risk of being struck by lightning also increases. It's conditional risk. There's a great XKCD cartoon talking about conditional risk. So this idea that your risk is conditional on the things that you're doing. So if you're outside camping or if you're playing golf, your risk is very high. And you know your risk is particularly high if you think the risk of being struck by lightning is very low. But, um, but it sounds like maybe 20, 30, 40 people in, the, say, the United States again, because that seems to be where they get the stats are struck by lightning every year so whereas it used to be much higher is my understanding it used to be 400 500 i think they have a big lightning safety 
campaign, campaign, uh, but, campaign by the National but also people left people work in farming and work outdoors and things Just like that. Not long ago, tragically, there was there was two folk killed climbing Penny Fan in Wales, wasn't there? I think it was about six months ago. Mm. So again, conditional risk, you're you know, putting yourself in harm's way. It's also a kind of freak thing, isn't it? You know, and the, I think these it was just really bad conditions to, to Penny Fan's very a very lucky. bare yeah, hill. Yeah. You know, um, but you, these were two separate strikes, I believe, oh, right. as well. Oh, very unlucky. Yeah. yeah. It is very interesting, you know, as a man to hear you say, oh, I think it was a freak accident because they've done some statistics <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> right, you better uh, back this yeah, up, Claire. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, so there are quite a lot of strikes. There's more than you might think. So from 1988 to 2012, there were 445 strike incidents which affected one or more people um, and there are 47 fatalities over that period so uh, that's quite high so for all incidents where the gender is known the breakdown is 64% male and 36% female for outdoor incidents only yeah. would you like to take a guess no. <laughs> 73% of people struck were male do you think that's because they're taller <laughs> <laughs> I suspect not. <laughs> this, it'll be interesting to see how this changes as we it, move It would on. not surprise me if you've hit the nail on the head there. I wonder if it's more male golfers, because, you know, golfing's famously... I don't know if this is true or not. I presume this is true. Golfing we should is, look this up. Golfing is famously a risky thing to do in, uh, <laughs> in, in, the, in the rain. And knowing my dad, golfers will play in any weather as well, so... Yeah, it's about exposure, isn't it? I think so. And I mean, it is true that more men work in the construction industry, more men in the farming industry. So it is people in those environments outdoors where they're more likely to get struck. Okay, so I have a picture. I like bringing pictures along, which I'm going to... Neil's just had a sneak preview, but I'm going to show you and judge your reaction on this. Looks very nasty. Yeah. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? So, um, I hope everybody's mind's boggling at home. But. This is a, yeah, sorry, I should explain it. It's a picture of what's known as a Lichtenberg figure. And this is something that occurs on the skin on people that have been struck by lightning. And if you can just imagine what forked lightning looks like, and then imagine that as a red rash on somebody's chest or along their arm. Yes. It looks like a tattoo. It looks even more um, biological than the, than the lightning itself. It's pretty nuts. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I actually have to say, I've seen this, looked at this picture a little while, and at first it just completely grossed me out. Um, and it's to do with the electrical charge and the way it then dissipates across the skin and through the, the body. Um, and I think it disappears over time. But it's amazing, really, that, you know, these people are not killed, but they're left with a, almost a, an imprint of lightning on, the, on their bodies. These were discovered by a, a German physicist. So we're back to physicists who... They either name things after stupid things or they name them after themselves, don't they? <laughs> uh, which is fair enough. So a guy called George Christoph Lichtenberg in um, like the 1770s was studying things in the lab. So uh, just before Tesla, I guess. Mm. But around about the same period of time. So hot period for lightning research. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> That's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Quick as a flash, eh? <laughs> no, no, stop, stop, stop. No. So, so, I mean, that's on the body. Um, you can also get what's known as petrified lightning. So if lightning hits kind of sandy beaches or things like that. They've got a posh name, don't they? Dendrites or something, isn't it? Oh, no, hang on. I'll just refer to my notes. <laughs> uh, something called fulgurite. Fulgurite, that's the one. So fulgur is the Latin name for lightning. Oh, right. Did you know that? I like my Latin and Greek facts. I'm going to throw a few of them in when I can. It's good. It's a good name, isn't it? And fulminology is the study of lightning. What about the fear of lightning? I read somewhere it was astrophobia, but that sounds rather like being. It does sound like being scared of stars, doesn't it? So I'm not sure if I. Uh, or being scared of horoscopes or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, great. Well, I think that's uh, about all we've got time for this week. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you next time. All right, bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.